Hey folks, it's Jared. Thanks for tuning in. A great, somewhat massive episode for you today with Larry Bond and Dr. Sebastian Bruins joining me to discuss Red Storm Rising, Wargaming, and about 35 other topics. I also want to highlight Simsex Project Trident. If you don't follow Simsex on Twitter, go do so now or visit the website at simsex.org. If you're interested in shaping the future of international maritime security, this is your opportunity. Project Trident features seven broad topics, each presented by a partner organization in the form of a call for articles to address diverse perspectives on maritime security. We want to hear your voice, international, disruptive, and seasoned. From academia, industry, government, and the military, topics will include emerging technologies, infrastructure and trade, and even a fiction contest. You can find more information at simsec.org. With that, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome aboard Sea Control. This is the second in a series on the Navy and popular culture. First was Sea Control 156, Sink to Montana, with Claude Barraby, an angry staff officer. So please go back and listen to that when you get the chance. My guests today are legendary author and war game designer Larry Bond. We'll be discussing his game Harpoon, his World War III collaboration with Tom Clancy, Red Storm Rising, the hunt for Red October, and the Navy and popular culture in the 1980s, as well as his current work. Also joining us is Germany's Dr. Jack Ryan, although I think for the purposes of this podcast, Sebastian, you're actually Bob Toland. So Dr. Sebastian Bruins joins us from the Center for Maritime Strategy and Security at the Institute for Security Policy, Kiel University in Kiel, Germany. Larry, Sebastian, thank you both for agreeing to join us today. Love to be here. Thank you. And Sebastian, I'm going to begin with you because we had your colleague from ISBK, Johannes Peters, on a bit ago discussing Defender 2020. Can you provide us with a little bit more of your background? Sure. I direct the Center for Maritime Strategy and Security, which is Europe's continental Europe's only uh, maritime and naval theme think tank. My professional background is I have a PhD in political science on U.S. naval strategy. Um, I've spent some time living in, living in the U.S., and at one point I was actually, in fact, introduced to a TV producer as Germany's Jack Ryan, and that kind of stuck with, with me. So uh, I have a master's in North American studies, which is sort of the lead into popular culture, if you would say so. I actually refer to you as Germany's Bob Toland, which is the principal character in Red Storm Rising. He's a Naval Reserve Intel officer. And I believe you just got back from an activation that was cut short by COVID-19. Is that correct? Uh, it's classified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah, you're right. It was, uh, I was. Uh, you just stuck with the first answer. That was much, much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was supposed to do reserve training. It lasted six and a half hours. I got a picture of me in camouflage in so I could prove I was there. But then it was cut. It was cut short. So nothing to talk about, really. <laughs> And are you actually an intel officer in your uh, Navy life, if you will? No, I, I, I'm not. No, actually, I, I will be uh, I will be on staff duty, which probably going to be more in the strategic realm, strategy operations. Well, that makes sense. So, Larry, I think your story actually begins with your time in the U.S. Navy. What made you decide to join the Navy? Well, it's uh, the recession in 1975. Strangely enough, I uh, was working at a, as a computer programmer fresh out of college, and they laid me off, and I needed a job. And I liked the fact that one could join the Navy, and they would teach you the skills that you needed. And it looked interesting. My, my whole family's been military all the way back to the Civil War. So they were 
completely behind the idea. And one uncle who had been a graduate lawyer in the Air Force said, urged me to join the Navy because his time in the Air Force had been as an airman basic because you, you sign up and then you take the tests. So he was already committed. And this way, if I, if I, for some reason, flunked out of the training, I would be a civilian again. And I, I went for surface warfare, and I was stationed on a destroyer in the Pacific, and I liked it a lot. I was always interested, in, have been interested in war games ever since I was eight. And I looked at what the Navy was doing for training, that we're doing a lot. Now, I won't say it's my own initiative, but in 1976, in the summer, a magazine called Surface Warfare had a issue, and the cover of that issue was NAVTAG with some miniature modern naval ships on it. And I went, oh, what is this? Well, it turns out using war games for training. And I, I said to myself, gee, how can I obtain a copy? Well, it turned out the guy who wrote it was a staff officer on a ship just a few piers down at San Diego Naval Base from where we were st- from where we were birthed. So I walked down there, got a, you know, went and saw, oh, now his name escapes me, total brain cramp. Neil Byrne, tank commander, Neil Byrne. And he gave me a copy. I had to sign out for it because it was secret, no foreign. And I brought it back to the ship and showed it to the skipper. He said, bravo, Zulu. Yes, set up some games. And... Just a little insight into shipboard life. If I hadn't had the skipper's backing, I never would have been able to run a game on that ship because there's just so much to do and so much other, so many other demands on your time that if the skipper had said, you get, we'll send your guys to this training session, it never would have happened. And everybody thought it was very useful. I was distressed because it was not easily playable. The rules were terrible. Sorry, Neil. And it was secret no for it, which meant I could not leave copies of it lying around for people to read. The stats were were all classified, so I couldn't make copies of ship portions to pass out to people to use for their games. So I resolved to write a simpler set of game rules because I, and the other thing is, Neil was a war gamer. He had written it using war game nomenclature. Uh, so Dr. Sebastian, are you a war gamer? Do you play play war games? Uh, not as much as I would like to, no. Okay, but you, you, but if you don't know the jargon, you're totally at sea, pardon the pun. And so <laughs> I wrote a game that was used as few war game terms as possible and used completely unclassified information available from Janes and combat fleets and such sources. So we could leave copies of them lying around. Now, I was extremely fortunate at that time to know, well, I, I grew up in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is evidently one of the hotbeds of, of gaming in North America because I was good friends with Dave Arneson, creator of Dungeons and & Dragons. And Dave had started his own game company, Adventure Games, and I asked Dave if he would publish my game, and he said, sure. So Dave published it and appeared in April of 1980. That was the first edition of Harpoon. But the whole idea of it being amazingly simple so naval officers can understand it, and it being unclassified so that everybody could, you know, wouldn't have to, to sign anything before they played the thing, made it a great civilian game as well. 
and it did very well. It won awards. So that's that's the genesis of Harpoon. Well, I want to ask you is like first, I think you violated several regulations just by telling Sebastian all the uh, no foreign stuff. But we'll uh, <laughs> we'll let it slide. Uh, our listenership is not wide wide enough where I think it's going to be a problem. But maybe that'll change now that we've had you on. The fact that you were able to go to Jane's, because that was one of the questions I wrote down as you were speaking, is open source intelligence has evolved quite a bit. And back then, I think you were pretty much limited to Jane's as your open source intelligence. Is that accurate? Well, uh, Jane's is a similar reference books. Actually, on our ship, we had a copy of Combat Fleets of the World by A.D. Baker III. And that is that, in my opinion, was far superior to Jane's. First of all, it's much cheaper. It still is cheaper than Jane's. Almost anything is cheaper than Jane's. And I, I just felt the information was was uh, better displayed and more complete. I, I certainly bounced when I had access to Jane's. For instance, when we were near a library so I could go in and, and use the uh, resources there, I would bounce the two against each other. And, you know, obviously as a researcher, one of the first things I learned was, you know, multi-source everything because – no one, no one has all the information, and nobody has all the right information. And I discovered typos in combat fleets and typos in Jane's and other errors that were like, what? And, you know, in one sense, my work with Harpoon has been about my personal understanding of naval warfare growing and broadening as, as, the, as the game progressed. The first edition of Harpoon ignored such matters as Greater Horizon. That didn't come in until the second edition. So, yeah, open source, and nowadays, of course, with open source being, you know, you grab a Russian web page and, you know, put it through Google Translate, and you're reading a tremendous amount of stuff. It simply was, it was unthinkable, un, un, unimaginable back in the day. I think Sebastian brings up a good point, too, is that... Uh... I think we would all like to be able to play these games more often, but the difficulty is often finding somebody to play with you. So, Sebastian, uh, what is it like in the office there? I would imagine that Jeremy Stowes and Johannes would be uh, willing partners, but uh, maybe you don't have as much time as you'd like for it. Well, thank, thank you for setting this up. Of course, Germans are all about work and no play, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, that's our Prussian heritage. Um, uh, the thing is, there's no the the, the wargaming culture is is not is not nearly as big in Germany as as it is in the U.S. or in the Anglo-Saxon sphere, I should say. And I, I I'm I'm among those people who really regret it. You know, we've we've got these game we've got a couple of games like you know tabletop games in the office, but yeah, I mean it's 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 a time issue. And um, as Larry was saying, you know, you, you, you sort of, it's nothing you do on the side. It's nothing like you, hey, you know, you've got an hour, you do it. You really have to reserve a day or actually more than a day if you really want to get into it. And since we've been uh, so crazily successful with all the other stuff we're doing, wink, wink, uh, there's just so many side projects. But I'm, I'm hoping we can pick it. I mean, this is this would actually be the, car the quarantine and the uh, social distancing would be ideal to to try to pick it up, and even if, if it's done remotely on uh, on Zoom or Skype. We'll see. Well, it, it's, uh, I will agree and disagree with you, Sebastian, about the, the, the Prussian heritage, because everybody knows about the birth of wargaming with Kriegspiel, and, and Prussians, I think, managed to turn 
play into work, I think, or work into play or something like that. And I have to tell you a story. When we were uh, having war games exercises off the California coast and blue versus orange, my, my blue destroyer squadron was looking for an orange destroyer squadron. And the way we resolved gunfire combat was with dice by an observer who was aboard our bridge. And you've never seen grown men cheer over die rolls as, as, the, as the retired Navy captain who was the referee gets down on his knees and is rolling dice to see whether or not we hit the other side. <laughs> and, I mean, you, you, would, you, you had to go through all the drills. You trained the guns out. You locked your fire control radar on. And then you would, uh, with your signal lamp, go golf, 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 golf to indicate you were firing guns. Of course, you could also fire Mike, Mike, Mike to indicate you were firing missiles, but the referee wouldn't let us do that because we weren't fitted with any. But <laughs> the wargaming, the, the, the dedication of the enthusiasm that people bring to that is universal. If you can tap into it, I think, I think you can really improve gaming and, and make it use, useful as a training tool in the military. I, I gave a keynote speech on that a couple of years ago at Connections because, um, I mean, I briefed, I had a uh, air planning game on Israel attacking Iran, and I was talking to a group of very, very smart Marines, which is not a contradiction in terms. The Marines were all E-5s through O-3s at intelligence school, and the idea was we were using this to, for air staff planning, for you know threat analysis, everything. But they did not understand what a combat results table was. They did not understand. And then none of them would admit to ever having heard of Dungeons and Dragons, much less ever playing it. And I could not get them engaged until they found out that if they rolled the dice properly, they blew stuff up. Once they figured out that if they got the right combination of dice, things exploded, then they were engaged. Mm. It's all about the dice. <laughs> Larry, let me ask uh, about the Navy in the 70s, because I've heard so many stories from, and uh, out myself as a youngster here, I was born in 1980, so I've only heard stories about the Navy post-Vietnam and what the morale of the force was like at that point. Can you tell us a little bit what it was like to go from the 1975 Navy on into the 80s when sort of the fleet was being renewed and exploding in size and is getting a lot of attention? I'd be happy to talk about that. Now, I, before I insult anybody's intelligence, did you serve in the in, – were you in the service at all, Jerry? Did you I, join later? I, I'm an active duty commander, so yes. Uh, I'm oh, a... okay. Oh, so, okay, so you're, you're, you're still active. Okay, yes. great. And, Sebastian, you were in the Kriegs, uh, uh, right? <laughs> or, uh, actually, no. I, I was a, a conscience objector back when we still had the draft. Um, this was in November 2000. Uh, I started my civil service on September 1st, 2001, and 10 days later I thought, well, maybe this world isn't so peaceful after all, and I began being interested in, in the military, in the Navy, and um, so it's been, I've, I've come full circle in 20 years. I have to say, I joined the Navy in 1975 is when I enlisted, went through Oscar Candidate School, and I went to my first ship in, in 1976, and I was aboard, and it was the peacetime Navy. That's the simplest two-word explanation of it. And 
there was an attitude of, well, you know, if the balloon goes up, it'll be nukes. So why are we, why are we even training in damage control, for instance? Or why are we? I mean, we trained. We we did our jobs. Most sailors saw it as a job, and most sailors said, well, I'm going to take the skills that I learned in the Navy and get out and use them somewhere in the civilian world as soon as I can. And we had a fairly high turnover rate. The the big change was, I believe, in 79 when Iran took the hostages. We actually had one fellow who'd gone UA, unauthorized absence, AWOL, and he appeared on the brow a couple days after the Iran hostage takeover and said, "Where are we, when are we leaving? And we're all looking at him like, going, where are we? And he says, well, I want to go kick the Iranian's ass. And pardon my French. And uh, we said, no, no, you're going you're gonna to go elsewhere. And they hauled him off to the brig. But I think that sea change carried over when, when Reagan was elected. I don't know how much of an effect it had on Reagan being elected. And really, while Reagan was the national change in attitude, for the Navy, it was, the, it was his selection of Secretary Lehman, who completely changed the Navy's culture almost overnight. I was uh, the uh, legal officer on my ship, collateral duty, and court-martials, all that type of stuff. One of the things we could do in the Navy was, I'm sorry, I'm trying to form this carefully because I want to get it right. We could flush bad actors out of the fleet, disciplinary cases, low performers, guys who's, who obviously should never have joined the Navy in the first place. But obviously there, were paper, there was paperwork to be filled out, and then you sent that paperwork to, to the Bureau of Personnel. They processed it and sent it back, and the guy's out of the Navy. No problem. There were a few restrictions. He could have been in the Navy less than six months. He couldn't do this. And the important restriction was he could not be in a disciplinary status, which meant either being processed for an offense or serving time for an offense while the paperwork was in process. So you had to tell this bad actor, can you be a good boy while they process this paperwork? Never happened. Well, Lehman came in and immediately changed. First thing he did is he changed the name of the Navy Correctional Facilities back to Brig. That was right there. And then he said, you got a bad actor. If he's been in the fleet more than six months, you can flush him. Just tell us that you've done it. And you could hear the screams of joy all over the squadron as, as we got rid of so many bad guys. Immediately upped the Navy's pay. Everybody's pay was raised automatically by 11.5%. I remember that because it was a fairly impressive chunk of change for me. I was an ensign at that point. And, uh, no, I, well, I think I just made Lieutenant JG. And the admirals were all amazed that retention improved because <laughs> they'd been drinking their own Kool-Aid. The stuff they'd been selling us was, well, it's not, it's not, you know, the officers, it's not, it's, it's leadership. It's not the pay. You've got to, You've got to have proper leadership, and that'll improve retention. Well, guess what? Pay help, too. So a definite change in attitude, a definite change in, in, in leadership at the top improved the troops' morale and their performance. It was, it was really quite, uh, I don't want to use the word refreshing, but energizing, stimulating, made us feel good about, about prospects. Of course, all of a sudden there's a threat. Russia invades Afghanistan. You know, the world is not as nice as we thought it was in the 70s. Hmm. I'm sorry, that was a very long answer. Feel free to edit that if you choose. 
No, absolutely yeah. not. Sorry, Sebastian, I think, did you have a question? Yeah, if I could chip in there, I think that that kind of sea change is also reflected in the, the representation of the military in U.S. popular culture. You know, in the 1970s, you've got, it's either dark, think deer hunter, or fantastic, think, think it's the final countdown where the Nimitz is traveling back in time. And then in the 1980s, the representation of, in popular culture of the military is something like John Rambo, you know, Top Gun, these kind of movies. And I think that's palpable sea change in the spirit and the, in the mentality of the 1980s U.S. Navy, the maritime naval renaissance, if you will, versus the 1970s. I completely agree. I completely agree. So I'll tell uh, both of you, I'd like, feel free to explore the space. We can put up plenty of tape. Long answers are encouraged. People are here to listen to the two of you, not to me. How about funny stories? Because when I was at Center for Naval Analysis, I met Commander Andy Damblegan. Now, he had been squadron commander of VFNU-1 when Final Countdown was being filmed. So he was on Nimitz and coordinated with the, the tech reps about where the cameras had to be on the F-14s. The best story he told me was about if you remember a scene in the movie where two F-14s do a fast flyby on the Zeros, well, the Zeros were being flown by stunt pilots who were World War II veterans. Now, they amazingly experienced flyers. The 14s weren't supposed to get that close. The Zeeks got caught in the, do in the, in the, in the jet wash. And which, when they're not maneuvering, they're trying to stay in the air. If they'd been any closer, I don't know, pieces might have come off of those airplanes. And there's a recording of the radio circuit. Of course, everybody was on a common circuit to coordinate the movements. And the guys are just chewing out these young pup lieutenants with language that I don't know even aviators had ever heard. So that's my story about the Final Countdown. I say I do love Final Countdown, if for nothing else than just the shot of the flight deck and the incredible diversity of aircraft on the flight deck. When you look at a U.S. carrier today, it's pretty... Uh, can't remember, is it heterogeneous or homogenous? Like, all the aircraft are the Homogen same. Homogenous, yeah. F-18s. Well, if they could figure a way to put a radar dish on an F-18, I think uh, we'd be in deep trouble. <laughs> <sighs> yes. Uh, so I'm going to transition now to Red Storm Rising. And we already talked a little bit about Harpoon. I, I believe Harpoon is what led you to your relationship with Tom Clancy. Is that accurate? Absolutely. You know, talk about dumb luck. Heavy on the dumb. Uh, Tom bought a copy of the game and used it as one of his many data sources when he was writing Hunt for Red October. He reached out to me with some questions about naval terminology. You know, is it right hard rudder or hard right rudder, that kind of thing. And I read a draft of it and actually made some comments and for that reason he was very nice. He gave me a nice little blurb in the front and a thank you for which I'm grateful. And we, you know, in the course of working with that we became good friends. He called me up on Saturdays and we chat for an hour or two about naval stuff and military. Tom was a wannabe military guy. He wanted to be in the military in the worst way and he had Coke bottle lenses on his eyes. I mean, nobody would take him. You know, just... His eyes were just too bad for anything, even infantrymen. So he was completely interested and very smart and always fitting pieces together in ways that they weren't supposed to go. No, Tom, that won't work because of this. And so I was challenged to explain to him all this stuff. So, But again, he was drawing on my wargaming expertise. Again, Harpoon, because it uses, used knots and, and nautical miles and other 
units that were familiar to everybody was very accessible to Tom, and he he can show Harpoon in Hunt for October because in the uh, in the chapter in the dogfight in the end, the Alpha submarine fires a Type F torpedo at Red October. Now that was my designation for the most advanced form of Russian wire-guided torpedo. When I wrote the original version, I had no access to anything classified in Russian torpedo designations. So I just went from type A, straight runner, all the way up to type F, wire-guided. And that's that's those were the, the designations in the game, and so Tom used that in the book. I was working on another war game called Convoy, which looked at the issue of getting the convoys with the reforger across to Europe if, if the balloon went up. And there was the whole question in the 80s about whether the Russians would t- try to send submarines down to attack the convoys. And I'm blathering on about Sosa's and the, the backfire rates and everything. So Tom says, that would make a good book. Really? You want to work on it with me? Best decision I ever made. Sure, Tom, that sounds like fun. <laughs> and, I mean, what am I going to do? And, and, you know, he, he was riding high with Hunt for October. I mean, he was... You know, you had you had President Reagan holding up a copy of the book saying, best yarn I ever read. So talk about a book endorsement. So I worked with Tom on Red Storm. And I was his apprentice, basically. I mean, he he could crank out 10, 15 pages a day. Very prolific, very good. And I was basically researching, supporting different analyses, arguing with him about things he wanted to do in the book or problem solving. I mean, I got to watch Tom Clancy lay it out, build it brick by brick, fix it when it wasn't working right. I mean, is that a perfect apprenticeship for a writer or what? And then, of course, it was blew the doors off of Daniel Steele on the New York Times bestseller list. We enjoyed that particularly. And uh, it was just uh, a tremendous success. But having Hunt for October was a very valuable entree because when Tom Clancy showed up at uh, Langley Air Force Base or we went up to Aberdeen to do research, we got red carpet treatment, which was which was a lot of fun. You know, it just uh, it was a tremendous experience and, and talk about falling into a tub of butter. Sebastian, do you remember the first time you read Red Storm Rising and what effect that book had on you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I, I read it in the in the mid nineteen nineties. And now it's important to know that one of the uh, final battles of the of the book takes place in a in a in or near a small town in lowest what is today Lower Saxony, and I was actually born and raised about ten to fifteen minutes south of Alfeld in a small oh village God. called Weinzen, um, and I was so intimately familiar with the geography that the book blew me away. It it just blew me away. I, I was born in 1982, so even a bit younger. And as a as a small child, I remember, uh, you know, the uh, this was not necessarily the, the reforgers, but uh, you know, the kind of exercises that the that the Brits would hold. And you know, as a as a kid, you're fascinated by the by the helos and by the by the tanks. Uh, you're a bit scared by the by the uh, by the jets that you know fly over. But all in all, I thought this was this was you know for for a little kid, this was interesting. It was only after the fall the wall came down in the mid 90s that as I was Getting older, you know, entering my teenage years, and sort of thinking about, you know, what's what what actually just happened, uh, and I picked up Red Storm Rising among many other books, and you know, it's it's fascinating to read about 
you know, World War Three going down in your immediate neighborhood. And, you know, we were, we were just uh, 30 miles, 40 miles west of the inner German border. My dad used to have a, used to say sort of jokingly, well, you know, we would just have been woken up one day and the Russians would have been here. No, no, no questions asked. You know, that's that's the kind of spirit that I grew up in. It's like, you know, carpe diem, if, if you will. But, uh, <laughs> it, it remains one of the most fascinating books I've ever read, you know, no, hands down. Yeah, obviously the local connection, I think, would you know, make it more pertinent to you. What always captured my attention is a lot of books write to narrowly avoiding the conflict. So there's the potential for conflict exists here, and somehow the protagonist you know, saves the day so that conflict never happens. And Red Storm Rising was one of the first books where I remember it was like, no, it's, uh, it's happening. The war is on, and... We've laid it out for you in incredible detail. And Larry, we, we talked about this a little bit before I started recording, but and I'm going to take the minute and fanboy out a minute. I've purchased at least 10 copies of Red Storm Rising over the course of my life. It's, I refer to it as the 799 special. Anytime I'm getting on a plane, I don't normally bring a book with me. I hit the bookstore in the airport there and pick up one of those books. It's 799 US, 899 Canadian. Is the price. I'm sure the price has gone up, but that's the one that's seared into my mind. And Red Storm Rising has made it into my book bag uh, on more than one occasion. I'll buy it, I'll read it, I'll get most of the way through it on the flight, and I'll land and leave it in the uh, hotel library and then purchase another copy sometime later for you know the next flight or two or three flights later. One of the things that really captured my imagination though, too, is once I got into the Navy and I was an anti-submarine warfare officer on a cruiser out in Hawaii, was the realism of the anti-submarine warfare scenes and some of the things that they would talk about in different geometries that the submarines would show. I was just fascinated by the level of detail, and uh, I think that must have been your influence there. That was my second billet on, on board my destroyer was as an ASW officer. And as far as I'm concerned, it's about the most fun you can have as a junior officer aboard ship because, well, there was one time when we picked up a sonar contact that was an honest-to-God unknown submarine. We were we were cruising in the waters off, off of California, just going from point A to point B, and I was serving an engineering watch, and all of a sudden, it's set condition 1AS, which is anti-submarine warfare. And I'm going, I didn't schedule any drills. So I'm up there, and sure enough, there's a boat paralleling our course of speed, but he's just forward of our baffles. He's missed the fact that that dead zone aft isn't covering him. And so he's just down there. Well, as soon as we turned toward him, he started maneuvering like a nuke. But at that point, I'm on the sound-powered phones to the bridge. I have the con. The captain steps away. The exo steps away. The tactical action officer in CIC steps away. I'm running the boat. I've got the whole show. I got the weapons, I got the boat, I am chasing this submarine, I am having the time of my life. And the big problem I had was my ASROC gunner's mate kept on, you know, saying, can I cable a bird? I said, not yet. Let's just hold off on that for the moment. You know, I don't know if we're going to shoot at anybody here. And there was a lot more to the story, actually, but the, the, the bottom line was it was probably, it, we're almost certainly one of ours that happened to be going through the transit lane and just took the opportunity to work with us for a little bit. But that, you just can't have that much fun anywhere else. 
it was uh, luckily there were no other ships around with information. It was open ocean. I could just chase that guy all over the water, and that is that is a tremendous amount of fun. And so, yes, I was an ASW officer and, and tried to put some of that into the book. The way you make things sound realistic in a story, in my opinion, is by using just enough jargon so that the readers understand it's jargon, but it's still understandable. And what that does, I believe, is it convinces the player, the, the readers, I keep on interesting mixing in players and readers in here, the person reading the book, that the characters know what they're doing and that they're expert and that they're very good at their jobs. way you can show somebody is not an expert is by them misusing jargon and then getting called on it or something like that. But the jargon is a, a quality or a label that you can put on people to have them sound professional, let the reader know that they know what they're talking about. And so the reader is sure they're getting good information. Well, I think you got it exactly right, because I can still read the sequences with USS Reuben James, the Oliver Hazard Perry-class frigate chasing Russian submarines, and I will still start to sweat and get amped up. Like, I'm in the fight with this uh, ASW officer and the captain trying to you know, secure the Marines' passage to Iceland. Were you involved at all with the design of the Red Storm Rising board game? Not directly. I mean, that was kind of a trip. Red Storm Rising was so successful that our agent received multiple proposals from different game companies, uh, including computer games, board games, and one of those moments where you, you may need a little oxygen. He rented a room at the Watergate Hotel, a suite, and when we went up there, and received, in turn, proposals from different leading game companies to produce the game. Now, I mean, so I'm meeting, you know, all these these very very well known game designers. Chris Crawford, I remember, was 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 a fascinating person to meet and talk with, and they wanted to do a, a Red Storm Rising computer game. We ended up going with Microprose for their computer game, and TSR for a board game. Now, both games are excellent. Doug Niles did the board game, and of course it was a, I want to say, it was a theater-level game, the Russian offensive across Europe, and used a lot of novel design techniques that were very well done. And then I had Microprose doing the uh, a computer game, which was a submarine game. That one we were heavily involved with. We had the guy who designed Civilization, the guy who did so, he's, he's a genius, Sid Meier. Sid Meier yep. came in and pitched this game to us. And it wasn't until, I mean, I could tell Sid was smart right off the bat. I didn't realize how smart he was until we were working on developing the game, which was going to be a submarine simulation where you are on a submarine shooting at Russian ships or shooting at other Russian submarines. And we decided to, to focus on the whole LOFAR analysis thing where you had to identify the solid signature of the vessel that you were attacking and, and do other things to, you know, actually develop a fire control solution. And Sid wanted to learn about sonar. And so Chris Carlson, my good friend and partner at that point, recommended we send him a copy of URIC. Now, URIC is, is the physics of underwater sound and is many equations and very few pictures. And Sid read it 
and understood it and came back to us and said, guys, if I understand this properly, if you can send a sound beam deep enough, it will go tremendous distances. And Chris and I are going, yeah. So Sid had derived the deep sound channel just from reading Uruk. <laughs> At that point, Chris and I are just going, we are in the presence of genius. Sid, Sid's a wonderful person to work with. That was a great game and, and did very, very well. So, yes, that game mm-hmm. I was. No, on the, uh, the, the the board game I was. Doug Downs presented that to us as a, as a finished product, and we went, wonderful. We received royalties on both, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, Sebastian, did you get the opportunity to play either of those? Uh, unfortunately, I did not. No, uh, this, the, the, as I said earlier, um, the, the, uh, the gaming culture... A has sort of passed me. Uh, I had other hobbies, and you know it's that it's that. Uh, and B um, nowadays it's just challenging to find the time to to pick it up. But uh, I think that's that's just a terrible excuse on my behalf. So, well, don't blame don't blame yourself because the only time I get to play harpoon is when I demo it at conventions. Actually, my my wife has done more to improve my gaming time than anything else because she tripped over a game called Zombicide, which is a board game. It's a tremendous amount of fun to play, and so she wants to play Zombicide. And so we will break out a game of that every couple of days. Well, every couple of weeks, actually, because it takes several days to play a game because they're, they're, they're long. But I do game, mainstream games, in addition to the, the, the much more detailed Harpoon stuff. Well, Sebastian, let me ask you this. Have you ever uh, thought about doing a staff ride at, at Alfeld for the Battle of Alfeld? So that was one thing oh, I always wanted to do when I was in Germany. I never, like, one, I would have had to convince my wife to come down there and do it with me. It was like, why are we traipsing around this German town that's kind of in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, honestly, it never occurred to me until now. I think it's a, it's a fab, fabulous idea. I, I, I love it already. I mean, I, I guess one had to, one, one would have to get a tally of, of how many people actually. You know how many people actually uh, would be on these staff rides, but you know it's it's it it writes itself really, and it's a fascinating idea. And I can I can assure you there's good beer down there. So uh, you know if anything we'll, we'll it will be a nice staff ride with a with a, a visit to, uh, to a local brewery. So uh, oh please please <laughs> sign me up. I will I will. In addition, you can even just go straight to the brewery. No, the uh, I mean pick pick it in the fall when the when the leaves are out. It's all. Uh, my wife and I used to tour Civil War battlefields in the fall, and we always really? thought it was a lot of fun. But a uh, staff ride, that's inspired. That's inspired. We Jared. should explore that. Totally. We should totally explore that. Honestly, I, I think that's, that, you know, that's another, I've, I've spent about three years of my life all altogether in the U.S., and I, 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 I envy both the war gaming culture as well as the, the, the staff rides and, you know, that kind of hands-on practical the whole thing of military history, not even just world wars, but military history, military strategy is so is such such a such a uh, niche uh, topic in Germany these days. You know, it's I, I wish we we'd had that kind of staff right culture. I you know I'd be the first first person to to kind of you know go through with them. But you know that's uh, I, I guess that's that's one of these things. Uh, the Probably grass always find somebody who actually has some ground experience. To, to conduct said staff ride because the three naval guys, yeah, that's a hill over there. There's another hill over there. I, I don't know. I mean, our terrain is flat. It's 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 conducive to war gaming, but you know, it's uh, I would probably not know what I was looking at, but it sound does sound like a tremendous amount of fun. 
So, so Larry, if I can ask you this, what was the biggest challenge writing Red Storm Rising or what kept you up at night? I mean, was it the, the terrain question as naval guys or? Just uh, the... Sebastian, it was the end game. Tom and I spent a lot of time talking about how we can keep the United States and Russia from, from going to a nuclear exchange. I mean, that's the, the whole reason why the U.S. and Russia haven't gone to war is mutually assured destruction. And we did a lot of back and forth, different scenarios. And finally, we, we, we had to come up with something that was not deus ex machina. We had to come up with something that the readers would accept as a, as a reasonable alternative to Russia launching an attack. During the course of our work, our study, learning, we came to the conclusion that, to the understanding, it wasn't any, any kind of unique conclusion, that so much of Russia's strategy was defensive, that the whole purpose of the Warsaw Pact, the whole purpose of, of their naval strategy with the Bastion for the ballistic missile submarine was based around the idea that NATO was going to attack. Now, this is all before Able Archer 83 became known in the West. So I think we, but we were on fairly safe ground. And so we were, we both believed intuitively that if NATO pushed Russia too far, too hard, they would go to nukes. And we did not want that to be how the book ended, because that would be an end. And so we came up with the idea of the coup. And there was a big problem there, because Tom's going, well, how are the coup guys going to... This was kind of a stopping point in that we were struggling with ways to have the coup get organized. I mean, Russia, I mean, they've got all these different people. And finally, we remembered, I remembered, I will take credit for, for this, I remembered that one of the guys who was against using nuclear weapons, who thought it was simply a bad idea, we should not do it, was in the KGB. And so he gave a list, he got a list of all the guys whose loyalties were suspect and passed that to the conspirators. So these guys are safe. You can work with these guys because they'll, you know, they're on our side already. That was sort of the key to establishing in the reader's mind that the, the conspirators could successfully form a coup or execute, execute the plan for a coup without being detected by the KGB because the KGB was, was already in on, in on the deal. Uh, that, was, that was the biggest story challenge, storytelling challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian, did you have a follow-up? Otherwise, I have a couple. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, Larry, first, uh, you touched on Able Archer 83. Could you explain what that was? Because oh, I'm sorry. No, no. It's like, I understand what it is, but I'm sure there are some of our listeners who don't know what you're referring to. For the listeners, Russia was deeply convinced, and maybe as a result of their, their, their natural you know, history of being invaded so many times that eventually NATO was going to attack them and, and that our whole strategy was oriented around attacking and conquering Russia. And so one of the many measures that they instituted uh, in the 80s was one called Rayon, which I don't know. It's a acronym of a Russian word that I cannot pronounce and won't even try. But it was, it was a hypersensitive program 
where they would look for indications of a, a NATO attack being planned, staged, preparing. And they cast such a wide net and looked so hard that it was almost impossible for them to not find said indications, hints, etc. Now, NATO in 1983 held Able Archer. It was an exercise, and it was a command post exercise. A little bit larger than most, but not all that unusual. But a command post exercise takes the command staff and puts them in a realistic environment where they're receiving transmissions and orders as if the war is going on and issuing orders as if the war is going on. And it's all about how the command staff is doing its job. Are they processing the orders properly? Are they receiving and understanding the intelligence reports that they receive? Now, this particular command staff exercise actually went down more than one level. It wasn't just division. It went up to higher headquarters and went down to lower headquarters. So they were they wanted to see how the whole thing fit together and whether everybody was working well together. And it was large enough, so it started tripping alarm bells in Russia. And they seriously thought that we were about to go to war and started preparing for war themselves. I actually have never read the book and just ordered it. It's sitting in my to-be-read file. And it's, it's a fascinating account of how we almost went to war over nothing. Can I add to that? And there's Please. a there's um, there's reason to believe, and, and uh, that 1983 was probably the second hottest year of the Cold War after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, because a lot of context is also confrontational. Uh, this is the year of President Reagan, who's been in office by then two years, of the uh, Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, also known as Star Wars. There's the uh, the accidental downing um, of a Korean Airlines 747 jet. Over the uh, of the Pacific, uh, with the loss of all lives by by the Soviet Air Force, and it's 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 a year of uh, it's a couple of years of leadership transitions in the in the Soviet Union. Uh, Brezhnev passed away, and uh, his two successors didn't didn't stay long as well until Gorbachev came in. It's the year of uh, of the Lebanon intervention of the of the Allied forces of the attack on the barracks. So it's 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 a very um, it's a very, very difficult year. Uh, there was a lot going on, Archer, you're right. Able Archer caps it off in, I think, September, October. And additionally, if I recall correctly, the Soviet tactic or the Soviet doctrine, rather, uh, is that large exercises turn into full-scale full scale war, whereas NATO's doctrine, NATO's approach was somewhat different. Exercises were exercises. If you were going to have a war, which... NATO didn't obviously plan. Then you 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 know you didn't you didn't stage an exercise to go into into crisis mode or into to go into uh, to attack mode. So it was a matter of you know not reading reading the other guy wrong or uh, wanting to read the other guy wrong, and it was it was it was close. Yeah. I I guess I guess the uh, the the caveat for intelligence gathering is don't look for what you expect. If you look for what you expect, you'll probably find it, you know, you yes. look for the unexpected, if you can do that. <laughs> but yeah, Able Archer was probably the peak. There were certainly other other occasions where we came close. So my second follow-up question there then is uh, about how you depicted the Politburo and the inner machinations of the Russian political apparatus. What, did oh. you, what were you deriving your insight from? Oh, boy. Well, that, that was... There's a story there, because 
we didn't know, I mean, we, the West, did not know a lot about the Politburo at that time. It was still fairly mysterious red box, I guess you'd say, not a black box. And <laughs> Tom, again, it, uh, the guy's brilliant. One of the things I learned working with him is don't be afraid to go and find the information. Go and find out, as, as Ricky Tiki Tabby says. And a book had recently been published, which I, we had both read, called Breaking with Moscow by Arkady Shevchenko. Shevchenko was the highest-ranking defector that uh, had ever left the Soviet Union. I think he was assistant or deputy secretary general of the United Nations when he defected. And Tom said, let's go talk to him. I went, what? And Tom reached out to him through his, his aid. Our agent contacted his agent, and he had an agent, obviously, because he published a book. And we set up a meeting at a Washington party. Just It was in Vienna, Virginia. And we drove over there. And very nice party. Shevchenko is, is, is there. And we sat down and, and, and talked with him about the Politburo. And, I mean, this, this is a tremendous guy. This guy's worked with Vermiko. He's worked with Khrushchev. He's he, he, all the big names. And I, I, I'm just kind of thrilled to be sitting in the same room with the guy. And my questions to him were all process-oriented. You know, are they, are they, you know, what do they talk about? Is there, is there an agenda? This and that and the other thing. Tom, and this, again, is his genius. He asked, do they serve water or vodka? <laughs> okay. Is the meeting held in some ultra-modern Soviet-style 1950s, you know, room? Or is it in, is it in one of the old palace rooms in the Kremlin? You know, with the old, with all the, 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 the guilt from the Tsars. And versimilitude, learning that word. I love that word. I don't. Is there what's what is the German word for versimilitude, Sebastian? Because I should learn that one. I I don't know. <laughs> realism, an air of an air of realism. A, a a a a the atmosphere. And Tom looked to create the atmosphere that was in the room and how that fed into the Politburo's mood. That was his. That was his genius. And it was just a, a fascinating evening. I mean, I almost didn't need the book after that because it was just, you know, talking with this guy was amazing. But that's how we got our information about the Pure Politburo straight from the source. I don't know if it did anybody else, but it sure helped us. No, I think it made for very interesting reading there. Uh, Sebastian, I would imagine, you know, we read it the first time for the action sequences, but now you're a political scientist professionally. Uh, do you find it more interesting to read the book from that perspective now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can't claim that I have 10 copies like you do, Jared. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, every time I, I pick it up, there's something there's something new and uh, there's something some new angle that I that I just follow through. And, uh, you know, it used to be the uh, just the, it used to be the, the geographic proximity. Then it then it was the, uh, the naval tactics and the naval doctrine. Then it was from a political science point of view or even Historians' point, historians' point of view, as you were saying, uh, uh, Larry, um, how does how does war develop, and you know what are the inner workings of this of the of the Politburo? Obviously, as a German, East Germany, where I've got lots of family who lived through that dictatorship as well, and their relations with the Soviet Union, and you know, there's a lot of things playing playing into this that time and again touch at least touch my my family timeline really, uh, my and 
in some parts my personal biography and i think that that's why the book works so so well it's 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 meticulously researched and it's it's yeah it's just one hell of a good read pardon my french well, uh, and it's not it's not it's not you know it's not fantasy it does not it, there's there's not one point at least to my liking where the book comes across as oh come on this is just fantasy this this is impossible so so it's really that that's why why it's why it's almost timeless and ageless so, Larry, were there any disagreements in the creative process between you and Tom? Uh, not in the sense of artistic temperament, but Tom and I would have would disagree about different elements of strategy and Iceland. He looked at a map and concluded that was a very strategic piece of real estate, which, of course, NATO agrees with, and said if the Russians are going to send their submarines down into the Atlantic, they need to take Iceland. And I went, no, 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 because they only have one airborne division. They have other things to do with that airborne division besides send it all the way out there. They could use it in, in Europe. And uh, I just talked about Russian doctrine being defensive, and I had all the, the standard arguments why this would not happen. And Tom said, no, it's got to happen. And so we played a game called the Great Keflavik Turkey Shoot. I thought that was before, That's what we titled it after the game. And this was – we didn't even have any targets down for the – the Russians to, to, to hit. This was just, can we get backfire regiment past the air defenses on Iceland? Now, the air defenses were very well defined. They have some radar stations there. The standard defenses are one squadron of, at that time, F-4s, and would be reinforced at, in, in a, at a mobilization by one squadron of, of F-15s. So that's what was on Iceland. And actually, that's very carefully defined. In, by treaty, you can't bring a forty-five caliber pistol onto that, onto that island, at least this was back in the days of NATO, without negotiating it at the, at the ministerial level. So we had a very good idea of what the defenses would be. Now, the Russians have their backfire bomber. We had all its characteristics. And so we ran a very simple air defense exercise where the backfires came south. The backfire player had all the time he needed to plan his scenario, he, you know, using altitude to conceal himself from, from the, the radar station, but at the same time, they need some more fuel, so he can't do that too much. And standard patrols being launched, and this and that and the other thing, and it ended up being a bloodbath. A single F-4 got into the bomber stream on the way down, and it shot down like four aircraft, because the backfires are not all that hard a target to hit. And then two other follow-up aircraft arrived and did more damage, but it was a tail chase, so they suffered. But out of a 27-bomber regiment, I think they lost six or eight aircraft on the way down. Now, they've still got the return trip, and the, the defenses will be ready and waiting for them, and they will suffer at least as many and probably more losses on the way back. And any any Russian player who looks at that and says, okay, we're suffering, what, 20%, 15% at best attrition on a single on a single mission, we can't sustain this over the entire war. And so given that, the story became more interesting because now the Russians are outside their comfort zone and they have to figure out how to do something they wouldn't normally do, i.e. invade Iceland with their sole airborne division. How do they get it onto the island without triggering a, a massive NATO response of, you know, hundreds of, you know, certainly dozens of transport aircraft coming and landing 
you know, taking off and heading for Iceland. And so that's, then we came up with Julius Fusick, who Tom discovered was a railroad ship and could be adapted quite easily to an amphibious role. And so a civilian ship became how the Russians, you know, launched a surprise attack and invasion on Iceland. And by the way, I, I've heard rumors that Iceland renegotiated their reinforcement treaty after the, the book came out. So, Larry, I can understand why, given its scope, Red Storm Rising was never made into a movie, but especially given sort of the 80s nostalgia wave that we've experienced in the last five years, it does seem like a really good candidate for maybe a three to four season long prestige television series, be it on Netflix or someplace else. Have you ever been approached about that? Oh, from your mouth to God's ears, Jerry, I have to tell you. We were approached when it was at its height. It was very popular, and my agent called me up and said, Lorimar wants to do it on HBO as a miniseries. You're, you know, and they want an option, which is, is, is agenting speak for they want the right to negotiate for a contract on your behalf, you know, you're giving them the right to go out and negotiate with other companies to, to put a deal together. We said, shoot, go for it. You know, Tom and I are, are doing cartwheels. And so <laughs> Lorimar went to HBO and said, we want to do, we want to do Red Storm Rising as a mini series. And HBO said, cool, how much? And Lorimar named a figure and HBO went, <laughs> and that was the end of it. Because back in those days, before CGI, you would have to feed the Russian army. This is this really, I mean, it's a big book, cast of thousands. Now, our agent still has, in fact, Trident Media Group's office in California is bigger than the one in New York, where the publishing houses, houses are. And what I've learned about the movie business, and that's, really still I'm still an infant but you got to have a champion you got to have somebody who sees it and has a vision and says yes I can make this into a into a killer series whatever and and really it's the same thing in the computer game industry the the somebody has to be your pitch man now it can be you if you're if you know the industry and I do not know the industry so I have not been out there pitching it I think there are two reasons why I think it's it's less attractive now than it ever has been one is that it is historical now it would be have to be set in either a historical times slot or have to somehow be you know seriously updated to represent a current day scenario the second problem is and this is something that i saw happen with all the military thrillers starting in the 90s is that we've seen it all on tv now Red Storm Rising and books like Red Storm Rising were immensely popular in the 80s. But as soon as Desert Storm took place and people were seeing laser-guided bombs go through office windows and down the corridor and turn left at the, at the water cooler, the whole what would it be like question went away. And I really think that's one reason why Red Storm Rising worked so well. There had been techno thrillers before. And actually, the techno-thriller genre goes all the way back to the, to the late 1800s. But recent editions, like General Sir John Hackett's book in the early 80s, uh, World War III, and uh, he did a sequel novel as well, were, were received well. And then 
Tom took it to the next level. Tom made it this, this great epic story and answered the question, what would it be like? What would modern war really be like? Using all this highfalutin, fancy-dancy technology that we've managed to acquire, but has never seen battle, the test of battle. And once you've seen laser-guided bombs go through roof vents, it's, okay, good stuff, works well. And, and without that, that, that what-if factor, uh, the curiosity factor, I think the sales are just done. I mean, black-clad ninja, ninja guys going, you know, with, with uh, suppressed submachine guns busting through doors, that's just, a, that's just a meme these days. That's, not a, that's nothing exotic or, or partic- even particularly interesting, unless, of course, there's a good story behind it. So I don't, you know, if somebody comes up and wants to do Red Storm as a, as a miniseries, I will, I will do Tech Advisor and, and be a happy guy, but I'm not holding my breath. Please, I hope you're right. If anyone's listening to this, I work cheap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a post-Game of Thrones world, I think, uh, one, maybe HBO has expanded their budgetary horizons. Two, a lot of what drew people into Game of Thrones was that sort of political interplay, which is massive on the Russian side when you read Red Storm Rising. And there's even sort of the personal story of Tolan's journey or Mike Edwards out on Iceland in that case where you know, I don't think it necessarily needs to be uh, what you described as the techno-thriller piece and the modern warfare piece is like, no, it's human stories and what's it like for this uh, inexperienced Air Force weatherman to lead these, you know, train marines on iceland in this difficult event save the that was sorry go ahead was 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 that that weatherman on iceland and uh because it was all about taking somebody out of their comfort zone and seeing how they, how well they perform you know have, giving them a challenge and them them doing well at it and of course he gets the girl you know so that's that's tom's favorite part of the story i think yeah, and so my mother was actually wanted to submit questions for this. I was like, ah, I don't know. I've kind of got an extensive list already, but that is also her favorite part of this. This is her favorite book as well. Uh, she passed it on to me, but the Mike Edwards storyline. So you have a classic fish-out-of-water story. You have a redemption story from Tolan, and then you have all the political interplay on the Russian side. I, I feel like there's more than enough here for the miniseries, and if you need a pitch man... I'm just down the road in San Diego, so. <laughs> I'll keep you in mind. So I'll, I'll transition. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you that. Transition now to uh, a little bit more modern themes here is that the rise of China is, to put it bluntly, pretty concerning if you're in the Navy today uh, as we look at the balance yeah. of forces. But does that get the creative juices flowing for you as a game designer and author? Oh, oh, obviously we. Well, we've. I've already written a couple stories involving China, Shatter, Trident, and some of the others, and they were all exploring different scenarios. There's no question that China is is trying to become a major player, just as we've seen other nations try and and rise up and become a world power. The question is whether or not they can sustain it. The other question, of course, is if if they decide to get pushy in the South China Sea or elsewhere, can we deal with them? Uh, I look at the U.S. strategic situation vis-a-vis China, and I say, in some ways, it's like World War II in Japan or even 
when we uh, when we were facing off with the the, the the Soviets because long stretch of water between the U.S. and where the action is and facing a hostile hostile shore. If they if China can build up this network of islands in the the South China Sea and turn it into a defensive zone. That makes it harder for us to get at the Chinese mainland. Assuming we want to get at the Chinese mainland, which is in itself an issue. I mean, two world powers fighting each other. The real question becomes, what are they fighting about? Uh, and we t- we talked about that in the books. There were different reasons. I mean, well, we did. I did the whole Red Dragon Rising series with Jim DeFelice, and uh, it becomes too complex. And of course, the nations are so interleaved. And so interlinked with uh, trade and, and other other issues, which of course back in the early 1900s said, "Well, they can't go to war; it's bad for business." Hasn't stopped us before. If the U.S. the war gaming is good for analysis, because you can, as I like to say, bang the rocks together and see what works and what doesn't work. For instance, the Chinese. Uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles that everybody's so worried about. I'm worried about them, but not tremendously worried because I don't think they've figured out how to target them effectively yet, or they're still working on the means to target them. Just because you can fire a ballistic missile and get it into the same part of the world where an aircraft carrier is doesn't mean you can effectively target that aircraft carrier. The fact that they've never demonstrated or tested the uh, DF-21, is it, in any kind of a scenario, to me indicates that it's still an aspirational capability, not a true one. They could do it. I think they would put, put put a dummy ship out there and obliviate it from 1,500 kilometers out just to show that they could. That I would regard as definitive. I know the U.S. Navy's declared it to be operational, and I think the U.S. Navy is right to worry about it. But there's a couple things that the, our wargaming has shown is that until you can figure out how to how to aim the thing, you don't know where to put it. You don't you do. And there's lags in targeting. There's lags in, of course, flight time. And now you have to get down into the weeds on this. You can't simply say the Chinese have this capability. And, and treat it as a black box. When you get inside that box, you find out, well, for that thing to home in on an aircraft carrier at all, it has to slow down. And as soon as it slows, it becomes vulnerable. I won't say vulnerable, but we can we can engage it with BMD, uh, missiles off, off of ships. Now, the Chinese, of course, not being fools, will launch other non-homing ballistic missiles along with the ones that are homing to saturate our defenses. And you go, you go back and forth. And this wargaming cannot predict an outcome, but it can let you study an outcome. It can let you look at different permutations of that outcome and various strategies to say, this strategy doesn't even work. Don't even pay attention to that. This strategy, if they build on this, this would work. And they need satellite targeting. They need over-the-horizon targeting somehow that's better than, well, he's somewhere in an area the size of Fairfax County. That's not, that's not targeting. That, that's queuing. 
and then you go from there to localize it and try and destroy it. I mean, the Chinese anti-ship missile threat is really still from cruise missiles and ship-launched uh, anti-ship missiles, not from not from ballistic missiles. And they've got a ton of those, and there's nothing at all wrong with them. And the fact that the U.S. Navy's working very hard to improve its cruise missile capability in the uh, uh, with uh, long-range anti-ship missile, I believe, is the one that they're working on right now. That's very telling. Also, you know, and this is this is pure speculation on my part, but if I was the Navy, I'd be looking at ways to take down very small islets, either with seals or with our own ballistic missiles. Islands can't move. Those those radar stations and those airfields on those 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 Chinese bases in the South China Sea that they've been building, they can't move. So they're perfectly vulnerable to our ballistic missiles if we wanted to get into that game. I don't know if we are or not. I mean, we I think we have a we have something of a, a, a innate reluctance to launch ballistic missiles towards another country. Uh, I don't know if the, the Chinese the Chinese would 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 see a flock of ballistic missiles coming in their direction. No, they're not coming down to the mainland. They're coming towards the, that little the, the Dayu Islands or the or the Paracels or whatever. Uh, let's hope their targeting is that discriminant. We probably don't want to do that right off the bat. But yeah, there's there's a lot of work we're doing. Uh, our company, Admiralty Trilogy Games, we, we've got a book about the Chinese Navy done by a, a, a German uh, artist uh, named Manfred Meyer. He is an artist for Vyers and decided to concentrate on China. And it's, it's an excellent book. And he keeps it updated every quarter. So he's always sending us new drawings, which we drop in, and then we upload a new PDF to the website. So uh, we're we're staying in the game as as much as we can because this is this is where a lot of the 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 changes and the the interest are is right now. Of course, China is huge. Absolutely, uh, Sebastian. Uh, I think we're just about out of time here. Do you have any final thoughts or questions? You just, uh, if I can add, the one thing is uh, you made me envious again of the kind of debates that uh, are being being held and debates and discussions being held in in the U.S. China. And the threat or the possibility of a of a major power war are really rarely discussed over here. And even even in my professional circles, if anything, it's Russia. But even that is always, you know, this this country is 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 just very. We, we just don't do military thinking and and military strategy anymore. And even the war game communities, you know, I mean, if my my one my one criticism of the war game communities, the professionals in Germany is that it's mostly confined to the military. The mil the Führungs Academy does some some of these things, but you know you, you'll be lucky if they if they play the uh, the Battle of the Bulge or the uh, or Stalingrad or something like that. There's I've, I've never seen a contemporary game that that is of course I'm you know I don't have privileges to venture out into the classified discussions and games that they have. Uh -huh. uh, so hopefully that that'll change uh, at some point. Of course I can't won't be able to talk about it then. <laughs> but that, my frustration is that we we don't have this kind of debate on a more broader level. And I think, you know, both Redstone Rising as, as well as Ghost Fleet, for instance, books can really go a long way if they're really well, well crafted to broaden that debate beyond the military policy folks that always, you know, everyone is already Catholic. So, you know, the idea, obviously, and this is where popular culture comes in, is we have to, we have to move it beyond the classroom. I mean, if you don't have it in the classroom, it's, it, it'll be a challenge because then there's nothing... Nothing for you to, to, to move outside of the classroom, right? 
but but that's my my parting thought is uh, or wish is that we in Germany get get more serious about the kinds of debates that we we have perhaps yeah jump on that train too Larry let me uh, ask you my final question that is that's uh, whose work do you read and admire were you uh, I saw you nodding what seemed to be vigorously as soon as Sebastian mentioned Ghostfleet oh well Ghost Ghostfleet was fun I met the author and he said you know, it's, it's, you know, I met him up at the Naval War College, and Ghost Fleet is a lot of fun. I, I can't, I will not comment on the factual part of the story, because I, I, there are some parts of it that are, stretch the truth. But he wrote a good yarn, and people enjoy reading it. And really, I mean, my whole purpose is to deprive people of a good night's sleep. <laughs> I, 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 I really want them to become so involved in the story that they forget that they're lying in bed and that they're the character. And, 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 and that really is what I look for in a good story myself when I'm reading. If he can do that, and I hope he goes on and does, does a lot more, not to mention the fact that it's simply generating positive, positive vibes for the Navy in general. I sort of put Ghost Fleet in with the same bucket as uh, Battleship, if you've seen that movie. Which is a fun movie. I really enjoy. I can sit down and watch that movie anytime you want. I want. Now, I enjoy Liam Neeson. He's, he he has a lot of fun with it, and and some of the other characters are a lot of. Fun. It's just, but again, popcorn. Sebastian, I I'm I'm surprised that you're having problems hooking up with the German game community because we've talked. I've talked to other German gamers who are very very enthusiastic. I know there's a very active community in France. So Europe in general, there's, there's, the, the guys should be out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I, I hope you find them and hook up and have some good games. It's interesting. The, 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 the genre, I feel, is changing. Having been to Origins lately, although obviously not this year. It's been delayed until October. There are fewer, pure war games based on historical battles or hypothetical battles using real-world forces. There are many more games like Zombicide, Dragon Castle. Mm. There's one called Cave Quest. And these are large box, very well-designed, high-quality components, and they have nothing at all to do with classic warfare, although you're still playing a game and, and, you know, conflict with forces and this type of thing. So some of them might even be be useful for, for, for training purposes. I know that uh, Maxwell Air Force College, Air Force, uh, no, Maxwell Air Force Base, the Air Force War College at Maxwell, they, uh, in some years, they have their students play games like Risk, just to get them used to the idea that, you know, there's there are other levels besides figuring out what kind of fuse a Mark 82 bomb is supposed to have. Right. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank my guests, author and game designer Larry Bond and naval strategist Sebastian Bruins. We'll have links up to Larry's work included in the show notes. Larry, what else are you working on right now? Well, right now, Admiralty Trilogy Group is full throttle on the fifth edition of Harpoon, which we plan to come out within the next couple months. That is going to be not only a new set of rules, which is the first set of rules in 20 years. I can't believe it's been that long. But also... The first two of the Navy supplements, which is a new series covering modern naval uh, systems, and there will be, a, vol- there'll be a two-volume set on the, the U.S. Navy and a two-volume set on the Russian Navy, kind of a gimme for the first 
two issues or first two releases and then a player's handbook and we're going to have a free jump start quick start that that can be downloaded as a pdf that lets you see how the game works and what the uh what the uh, different rules are and how they compare with earlier editions. So if you're interested in gaming, and uh, Sebastian, I can email you a copy of the galley if you'd like so you can see what's going on. Well, Anyways, Admiralty Trilogy Group covers all four areas, but we finally got the fourth one, Modern Times, included. I mean, we've been doing World War II, World War One, and even pre-Dreadnought era. So we've now, we've now got everything from 1890 up to the current day as a naval war game, well, that's been going. Uh, so I haven't, I can't say I'm starting any new books, new, new novels right now, because the publishing has just been sucking up every every moment of my time. No, that's understandable, Sebastian. You've mentioned the incredible quantity of projects in progress over at ISPK. Can you tell us uh, one? Where can we find you online? And two, what do you what are you all working next? I know COVID has sort of thrown a wrench into a number of your plans there. Sure. Yeah. So uh, all these events with, which we had planned, such as the Kiel International Sea Power Symposium that we host every year for Kiel Week, obviously postponed. Uh, I'm personally putting the uh, finishing touches on a book called Conceptualizing Maritime and Naval Strategy. It brings together 16 authors and discussing how countries in Europe, in the U.S., North America, I should say, and in Asia have conceptualized Navy and maritime strategy over the years and decades. It's a uh, a festrift, an honorary uh, collection of volumes, uh, a volume of, of collected a- essays, I should say, for Peter Swartz of the Center for Naval Analysis, well known in these circles. And once that's that's done, I'm, uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I uh, again, carpe diem, I suppose. I mean, you can find keep tabs keep tabs on what this German does uh, on Twitter at naval underscore gazing, naval obviously with two A's. Um, or you can follow the uh, Kiel Sea Power series, which is broader and includes the work of my colleagues at ISPK. And that, on Twitter, it's at Sea Power Series or www.kielseapowerseries.com. Thanks. Wonderful. Thanks, Sebastian. We'll be on the lookout for those. And as a reminder for listeners, you can listen to the first episode of the Navy and Popular Culture series, Sea Control 156, on the SimSec website, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks again to Larry and Sebastian. For our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. I want to tell you.